I might have to press play on it. You can press pause on that now. There you go. Yeah. Um, so that was great. That, that's that's what we call um, uh, in in the in our church and our movement. It's it's called the word of knowledge. It's where the Lord will would impress something. Kind of what Pastor Ken did this morning. Um, and so I, I I like to write things down in a notebook before I go, just where it's not like, because there's been some weird stuff happened before in, in Christendom where people have faked hearing from the Lord and like called out certain things while someone has an earpiece in and it's just really weird stuff. So I like to write things down beforehand and I'll bring the notebook up and then I'll open up the notebook and share what I feel like the Lord had had uh, had impressed upon me that day. And so the knee was something that 
um, that I called out that night, and, and uh, it's really awesome. She said that she, she didn't mention it in the video, but she told me that the surgeon that she was seeing is one of the number one specialists that deal with knees. And, uh, and they still can't find out what, what was wrong with her, and she's, she's doing really well, so that's really cool. And then I have one more. This one was from Sunday morning. Um, this is their worship pastor, Dan. They lead worship in silence. <laughs> I think there's, a, there's like a, a volume button on the very right-hand side, top right. That's okay. I can tell a story if you want. Just press pause on that. It's not fine. So Dan, I was uh, I had opened up my notebook during first service, and I was uh, I was going through, and they typically have like a really scheduled out time where the keyboards will come up come up at the very end, and uh, and during that time they'll kind of like everybody knows that service is getting ready to wrap up, and so while the keyboardist comes up, they kind of play, and so their keyboardist was supposed to come up and play. And he didn't see her because she had just had a baby not so long ago. She was nursing over the back. So he was like, oh, no, there's nobody to go up and just kind of play the keys at the end. So he, he went up through the green room. It was like a side door, kind of like what we have here. Went up through the door and was getting ready to get on the stage. And as he came out the door to set stuff up, the keyboardist was walking up on stage. And so he's like, oh, I'm super embarrassed. Everybody saw me walk on the stage and stuff. So he's like, I'm just going to hide in the green room for a minute. So he sat in the green room where nobody was at, and I, was, I opened up my, my notebook, and I, I started mentioning, hey, if anybody's struggling with eyesight recently, that there's a lot of um, issues with your eyes, I just kind of described it. And as he was listening, he was like, you know what, I've been dealing with lots of uh, sight issues for five years. And so I said, if you would be so bold to stand up, we would love to just pray for you right now if you could. And so he was like, I don't know what boldness looks like when no one's looking at me, but I'm going to stand up right here. So he was standing up in the green room. He looked down at the paper that was, that was at the bottom, and he couldn't see what the word said um, when he first stood up. And so he closed his eyes. I started praying. He opened his eyes and could see everything clearly, like 100%. And, uh, and so he was like, he was freaking out in the back, and he was like, I've, I've been dealing with this for five years, and I haven't really told anybody that I deal with eyesight problems, but I'm completely healed today. And so that was really great. And so that was just another testimony from it. So God is good. Amen. Amen. Okay, so. Uh, this morning, what I would like to do is I'm going to talk about the third chapter in the book of Titus. We've been in a little short series over the book of Titus. It's called From Titans to Titus. If you remember, the context of this book was written uh, from the Apostle Paul. He was writing a letter to Titus, one of his uh, spiritual sons, letting him know of how to just conduct life, ministry, and everything that's supposed to be happening as a leader. And so the first, two, uh, the first chapter deals with elders and leaders in the church. The second chapter deals with believers specifically. And this third chapter deals with society. So the first chapter deals a lot with how, how elders and leaders are supposed to be conducted, how you're supposed to choose your elders and leaders, how this is supposed to go about um, to help equip the body so that they can progress in their relationship with Christ. That second chapter is really important because it goes through each specific type of person that's going to be uh it's going to be an operation throughout the body so he goes through five different categories he goes hits old men he talks specifically to old men then he talks to old women then he talks to young women then he addresses young men and then he addresses what they call slaves in those days which is really an employer or employee so the way that we view slavery from our context is not the same as what they did back in those days um, they would, uh, that's a lot of times just, there'd be a really rich person that would be uh, owning all the land or the property and they would kind of manage everything else. And so you would come underneath as a slave for them 
if you maybe owed, maybe you had like a, a maybe borrowed money from them. That's where they were like their, your bank system. So you borrowed money from them and your repayment was to, uh, was to serve in their courts or to serve in their, in their establishment for a certain number of years. Many times it was up to seven years that you would serve as a slave underneath there. Some people would sell themselves into slavery so that they could uh, provide for their families back home because they knew that uh, these people were employing certain individuals so they would sell themselves into a specific type of slavery in order but it was like a nine to five job it wasn't a specific time where you were like brutally lorded over in that standpoint so it's very different in the context in which they were talking about from the bible uh and so that's chapter two so now chapter three is now now that we've dealt with the leadership of the church and now we've dealt with the believers the believing bodies how we should uh, act and and how we should live now it's how we should live in society so how should we not just conduct ourselves within the meeting and the gathering of individuals like we're doing right here on Sunday morning, but how should we act when we're outside of the church walls? And I think this is so vital and so important for us to realize that it's not just chapter one that's really important. People get hung up on your elders and leaders, and they become, uh, this is where we get the really inappropriate celebrity Christian uh, context that we see today to where everything is just about the pastor it's just about the bishop it's just about the the leader it's just about that person and whatever they say goes and and I'm, I'm just only serving that one person and that's it and they completely remove relationship with Christ in that point in time they make that leader an idol and that's inappropriate and then people are uh, people kind of get past that and get into the that second place where they're living life as believers but they only do it in the context of the church like the church building and so they're starting to conduct themselves in a better way or a better manner. Maybe they're doing well inside their household, like what they talk about in chapter 2, where they're, they're learning and they're gleaning from one another. But that's only when you're around a fellow believer. And people forget about that third chapter. That third chapter goes way past just looking at your leaders and, and learning from your leaders. It goes way past just the way you conduct yourself within the believing system, how you should be thinking internally. Now it's how are you going to conduct yourself in society when you're around people who are not believers, when you're around people who, uh, who may not even think the same way that you do. They're on a completely different wavelength of belief system. And so we know that um, in Crete, this is the area that, they're, that, uh, that Titus was at, in Crete, they believed that the gods, the Greek gods, were birthed their birthplace was Crete. So they believed that where they were at was the birthplace of all the gods from the, uh, from the Greek mythology. They also believed that, um, that they were higher and more superior than, and than many of the other people. So the Cretans were very much so um, high, highly self-absorbed in many different ways. This was also a place of high commerce, if you remember this from the last two times that we've gone through this. So, so this was a trading port. They would have a lot of different people from different nations and different places coming together coming together from to this spot so that they can uh, they can access different goods they can maybe make some more money and because it was such a high traffic area they also had a lot of different philosophers and philosophies that would come to this area to try and evangelize for their cause and so there was a lot of different types of belief systems that were in this in this city and so this is what Titus is dealing with within the believing body is that there were a lot of people who thought very highly of themselves specifically. There were a lot of people who had different thought processes on what uh, life was supposed to be like. They had different ideas of, of who God was or the gods themselves. They even believed that they could become a god if they were given such a status. Many times the leaders uh, believed that they were now divine, that they became almost a demigod-like uh, because of the, the status that they have gained that humanity has given them. And so this is what 
this is what we're involved with. And the kind of the, if you go to this throughout the, the entire compassing portion of this book, you would see that the, the theme comes from Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. And we can throw this up on the screen. It says, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Everybody say all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all the wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what's good. This is the theme, essentially, of the book of Titus, is that God gave us salvation so that we can dismiss and stiff-arm ungodliness, so that we can live lives that are righteous, while we wait for Christ to return again so that we can be eager to do what is good. So here in Titus chapter 3, we start off with verse 1, and he says this. He says, Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always be gentle toward everyone. This is, this is really important right here. These first few verses are really interesting, especially when it says, be, uh, be subject to rulers and authorities. Other ones say, submit to rulers and authorities. Um, there are two elements that, that really give this teaching a lot of weight. The first one is the, the tradition that grows out of the reality, that dawns out of this period, that, that Israel at this time had been exiled from their stead. They, they had been pushed away because they were Christians. So Christians has been, have been um, pushed away from their place of normal worship many times in this. There's starting to be a lot of persecution for them being Christians. And so many of them have kind of scattered into different areas. And so Paul has been great about delivering the gospel in many of these different areas. And, uh, and this also message gave a lot of hope in God's future because he said that we are still waiting on Christ's return and we are doing these things right now in anticipation for Christ coming again. And so he gave them something to look forward to, a hope that was greater than something that they were seeing right now. And so verse 3, he says this, At one time, we were too foolish, too disobedient, too deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. So he describes the state that we're in before we come to know Christ. I love that he uses the words enslaved. These guys were very, uh, they were very familiar with the concept of what I just described to you guys as slavery for those days. So the type of slavery, uh, enslavement that they were under was something that they depended on for their well-being. So they were enslaved to sin. A lot, of, a lot of these people, before we all knew Christ, we were enslaved to foolish thinking, to disobedience, being deceived and enslaved by all kinds of our own passions and pleasures. In today's society, we're dealing a lot with you do what you feel, and that's perfect. Whatever you feel like is the right thing. We're not going off of a truth. We're going off of your version of the truth. What is your truth? Oh, that's your truth? Perfect. You live that way, and I'll live my way, and everything's going to work out well. That, that only goes so far if you have someone who lives a somewhat moral lifestyle. But what happens whenever you meet with someone who is completely immoral? 
what happens when what feels good is actually something that is highly inappropriate and widely intrusive to somebody? Then at what point is that your truth and a good truth? So we're living in a, in a, in a time right now where we've kind of gone back into this type of thinking where whatever it is that, sh- that makes you feel good, whatever it is that sounds right to you and is, and is okay, bam, that's what you need to go for. That's what you need to go with. There's no standard that we're living by. The standard is made up by yourself, which is really crazy to me because if you look all throughout the span of history, you can see a lot of different examples of people who have done this over and over and over again, and it's never ended well. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again, expecting a different result. And so how can we be so so prideful and boastful and chauvinistic that we feel like we are going to change that cycle of doing that same thing over and over and over again and expect that something different is going to come from that, that we are just so wise that whatever makes us feel good is going to be the thing that comes out to be the right thing. It's not. Spoiler alert, it doesn't work. It's not going to work, okay? And so the thing that we need to be able to, to grasp around is that we need to hold on to something that is the truth. We need to hold on to the truth, the life, the way, and that is Christ. Jesus says that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by me. So if we actually want to have a true relationship with God, we have to go through the avenue of Christ. He is the only way that we can receive salvation. There is nothing that we can do to earn salvation. That we will never be able to. You can be the most moral, you can be the most, like, well-to-do person ever, and still not have a way to God because you refuse to go through Christ. And when you go through Christ, you're met with something that is much bigger than yourself, which is the reality that you are not able to earn salvation. You are not able to pull in all the things that you need to have the kind of life that God can provide you. Your purpose will not be found unless you're in Christ. You can, you can dabble in, in certain things that you're, that you're skilled in. You can dabble in certain things that, you're, that you can be successful in. But what is success outside of Christ? Bible says, what, what good is it if you gain the entire world but you lose your soul? There's nothing. There's so many successful people that in the process of them pursuing after things, status, and, uh, and, and opportunity, they negate the very foundations of what we're supposed to be doing, which is to love other people in the process. So many people end up undercutting and, and backbiting and backstabbing and pushing away and hindering the process of growth and relationship because they're pursuing after the approval of other people through status, through finances, and through other means. You are slave. You are, you are a slave to the opinions of others when it comes down to it. You are a slave to, to materialistic items, if that's, what, if that's what it's coming down to. You may think that you're pursuing the freedom of your own life, but in reality, you're actually pursuing what someone else perceives to be success. Where did you get this idea of success from? Where did that idea originate? It wasn't in your own self. You didn't make up success. That idea of what success looks like in America comes from something that we have seen over and over again, from movies, from television, from social media, from all these other things that are telling you what success really is. And when we pursue just that, then we will always push away what we've been intended to do, which is to grow with one another in relationship and community. To actually spend time with God. 
And you cannot do that outside of Christ. And so when he says this, he says, at one time we were too foolish and too disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Malice and envy. When we have these things, we, we start to, to hate other people because they have what we don't have. We start to become jealous for the life that they start, have, have started to live or they've been privileged to live. You start to be jealous for the type of things you're seeing on, on social media. And we know that, I mean, that's, I love social media and I hate it at the same time. Because it's wonderful to keep, a, keep track on what other people are doing and to, uh, to, to really connect with other people who are from a much l- longer distance than where you're at. I have lots of friends that are all over the, the states and different parts of the world. And it's amazing to see what they're doing. But it's also a cancer because it will really eat away at your perception of who you are and who you've been created to be. If you spend enough time on there, you will find that you are comparing yourself, whether you're intending to do it or not, you're comparing yourself with the lives of other people. There's some very creative people in the way that they can present themselves, the way they can present content, the way they can present material. And this happens also in the videos that we watch. It's not just on social media. It's if, if you're sitting there on YouTube all day long and only listening to what other people have to say about God, you are not spending time with God. You are spending time listening to someone else who hopefully is spending time with God. We have to be people who pursue after relationship with Christ. And in pursuing relationship with Christ, we will have a relationship with other people because we're passionate about that. And so Paul is, is hitting Titus with some pretty heavy heavy verbiage right here, telling us that we were enslaved, enslaved by all these things. To get what we want, we're slaves to our passions. But, verse 4 says, but when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared. Listen to this. When the kindness and love of our God and Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things that we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. It was extremely kind of God to offer a way of salvation for us. You look all the way through Israel's history, and you see time and time and time and time and time again a people who have s- had seen amazing, miraculous things happen in their lives, just being delivered from just the process of, of Exodus. If you just read the book of Exodus, you look and say, there's no way that I would ever have disobeyed God if I would have seen the sea split in half and we walk across and Pharaoh's army gets swallowed up by the sea. Every one of us get across without any kind of injury and Pharaoh's army pff, destroyed. The ten plagues before that, you look at those things, that's nuts in itself. Because Israel didn't get impacted by those things. It was Egypt. And they lived relatively in the same spot. You look further than that, and you start to see the miracle after miracle that happened as Israel saw the presence of God come and descend upon Mount Sinai. As they saw the incredible things that Moses was able to accomplish in his relationship with God. How whenever people rebelled against God, Things happened because of their disobedience, and those who were faithful continued on. We see the, the testimony of Joshua. Walking around, who walks around a building seven days, silent, and then on the seventh day, they blow a trumpet and all the walls come crumbling down? How does that happen? 
That's not a natural, normal thing that you see. That's not a strategy you see America doing when they're going somewhere to go combat some kind of different terroristic army. That's not a common strategy. You see Elijah and the crazy stuff that happened whenever he went up against all of the different prophets of Baal. They couldn't compete. They were cutting themselves, calling out to Baal, asking him to throw fire from heaven. It didn't happen. Elijah poured water on top of the altar. You don't put water on wood if you're trying to light it. It's not, a, it's not what you do. But he doused buckets and buckets and buckets of water on top of that altar. Fire consumes it. Elijah goes and kills all the false prophets of Baal. All of them. 800, right? Yes, 800. Make sure that's my Bible. Bible map, make sure I'm, I'm good on that. 800 prophets. He killed them. Th these are not common things that you see. And you can see the testimony of God throughout all of Israel's history. And you can see how often they continue to disobey him and go against his will. It's a miracle that God provided a way for us to have salvation in the midst of all the stupidity that we see from people in the Bible. The Bible's not some perfect, full of perfect people. Some kind of fluffy book with perfect stories in there. There's a lot of screwed up people that do a lot of stupid stuff and make a lot of dumb mistakes. Okay, can I reiterate that anymore, harshly? People are dumb. We make dumb, dumb mistakes too. So it's a miracle that the perfect God, all-knowing God, decided to give us a mercy and send Jesus as a perfect sacrifice to die on the cross to give us an access to relationship with him so that we could be transformed. Not so that we could be awed and wowed by external things that he could do, but so that we can have true relationship and be transformed from the inside out. It was never supposed to be a show and tell. It was never meant to be something where we just, just stand here and we just gawk at the amazing, cool stuff that God does all the time, but we're never changed internally. Jesus tells the disciples and all those who are listening up at the, uh, at the Sermon on the Mount, he details the law in a way that describes and shows them that everything that you see that was delivered from Mount Sinai was supposed to transform the individual from the inside out. It was never supposed to be an oppressive group of laws that just continuously pushes these people down to living a life that they would never want. When we look at the, at the law, when we look at the Bible, we look at what Jesus said, when we look at that as an oppressive piece of, of paper that prevents us from having fun, then we've missed the entirety of what the purpose is of the Bible. Missed it. It's gone completely over. The purpose of that is so that we could be transformed internally to be people who live righteously to display the goodness of God here on earth. It's so that our souls are saved, not our bodies. When you live for a law and you feel oppressed by these things and feel like I can't do good things anymore because, or I can't do fun things anymore because God said I can't do these fun things, then you're concerned with your body. You're concerned with your feelings, with your flesh, with what makes you feel good. Then you're still in the same thought process that you were in before. Being enslaved by the things that make you feel good. Being enslaved by hating other people who are not believers because you're like, well, dang, they're having all the fun that I want to have right now, but i got to be a stinking Christian. They can't do all the good stuff. This stinks. Blah. We've missed it. We've missed it. Because if we truly worship God 
we truly look at what he has to say, we realize that there's much more to this text that gives us access to greater things than what just making you feel good will do. We realize that, that God speaks. It's almost a, a mystery. It's the, it's the cool thing about, uh, about when you have a, a good relationship with somebody is that, is that you can be kind of ominous almost in a sense, and they still understand what you mean or what you do. My wife can, can cut me a look, and I know exactly, okay, I probably shouldn't have done that. I probably shouldn't have said that. And I know, you, she doesn't have to do that to anybody else. She can do that to somebody else, and they have no clue. They just keep on going, keep on doing their whole thing. Mm-mm. I know that look. I know what that means. It's ominous for some people, but the more that you have a relationship with somebody, the more that you understand the simplistic things that they are requiring from you. The more time we spend with God, the easier it is to actually hear his voice and to see what what he sees in people and in situations. It makes it to where we're not enslaved by anger, by hatred towards one another. Then he says this in verse 8. He said, this, what we just said, is a trustworthy saying. I'm going to read verse 7 again because I just want to reiterate that. So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. And this is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves in doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. This is where the rubber meets the road with us as believers. Remember, chapter 1, we talked about the, the qualifications and the, the thought process between who our leaders are supposed to be and how they're supposed to act. That second chapter deals with the life of the, the believer and how we're supposed to be responsible in our own lives. And this third one right here says that as we obey God, as we go through this process of living righteously, this is good for everyone. Everyone. Not just those in the church, not just those in your house, but those who you're incorporated with across the board in your entire life. As you live righteously, the people around you will benefit from that righteousness. This is a trustworthy saying. Trustworthy saying that everything that we do as it honors God, as, it, as we go through, not because I'm so ever-loving righteous that people are just so wowed by my life, but it's because of the grace of God that he sent his son to die on the cross to be a, 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 the hope for glory that we can have so that we can have relationship with God, so that we can have a modeled example of what the law is actually supposed to do for us in our lives, that right there, that right there is something that will impact somebody else's life to give God glory. If we do things so that we earn glory, then we've already missed the mark because the, the concentration is on me. But if I do things to say, regardless of the people that are watching, regardless of the outcome that they could have, because they may not be in agreement with the lifestyle that I live, but because of my concentration on give God glory, then everything that I do will be great. Because the intention is not for the praise and approval of people. It's for the praise and approval of God. And he is with us at all times. Th this, is <clears throat> this is something that's, that's hard, to, hard to do. If you don't have a relationship with, with someone, if you don't have a relationship with someone, then you're not going to be aiming for pleasing them. I have a relationship with my wife, and so what I do in my day-to-day -day process is I want to do things that also honors my wife, and it doesn't dishonor her. Whether if it's stuff I'm scrolling through on, on social media, 
whether it's stuff that I'm, I'm interacting with as I'm talking to fellow coworkers, whether it's just conversation I have with my family about other family members. Is this something that honors my wife in the way that I speak of her, about her, and the actions that I have in the midst of that? I'm mindful of that in my life. Am I perfect at that? No. But is my aim and my strive to make sure that I honor her in our marriage for everything that we do? So, if we take that principle and apply that within our own lives with our relationship with God, then we realize that in everything we do, not just when we're in front of people who are also believers, with my thought process. And this is why Jesus gets really specific and says, if you just look at someone with lustful intent, then you've committed adultery. Not the action. If you look at someone, you have anger in your heart towards your brother, you've already committed murder. He gets much, much deeper than the action itself. Because the action comes first from a thought. And that thought then develops into a continuous thought process and almost habitual. And that habit will then lead you to destruction. The activity is not the first part of that sequence. It's what happens here first. Which is why when Paul uses the, the terminology of we were enslaved to our passions. We were enslaved to our pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. All of that happens here. It doesn't happen out here first. It's right here. So how are we thinking in the midst of our lives? And how is that leading out in our workplace, with our family, with our friends, with those who are around? He continues. After saying that these things are excellent and profitable for everyone, he says this, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. You go, okay, controversy sounds good. Arguments I understand. Why did he say genealogies there? That doesn't make sense. Genealogies was something that's very, very important, especially the people of this era, because your, your line, your lineage, determines your status. Your lines determined your status. So if you were, if you were born of, of rich people, then you were going to have that rich and wealthy status, and you could then become a ruler, and it's in yourself as well, too status you could be you can be around people within the courts i mean how many times do you see politicians who their parents were politicians and their parents were also politicians their parents were also politicians you're going through the litany of that because of the relationships that they were grown in the the type of connection they have with different people in different areas they automatically were risen up to this place and this prominent position whether or not you think that they're profitable or or they have the accolades that they need to or not it's because of that relationship that they had the genealogy is also of looking through um, the, the process for them, for who, remember, Crete, they thought they were all gods and that the genealogies of their gods, they were all built there. Not worried about who was really important status-wise for godhood because there is no god other than Christ. There's no one that's higher and no one's greater, no one that you should be obeying than Christ. And the model that Christ sent was also submitting to authorities and rulers. He paid taxes. He talked about the importance of paying taxes. He even had Peter go out to a fish, pulled a gold, gold coin out of a fish's mouth so that they can pay their taxes. 
They obeyed the laws of the land in that case. Jesus was also very specific about the, the way that the law was interpreted. So he didn't break the law. He defined it in a way that it was initially intended to be. So when the Pharisees came against him with accusations about the way that he lived in his life, it's because he interpreted the appropriate way instead of the religious way that oppressed people in their lives, not allowing them to live a way that was profitable. So he said, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Use this in your life as well, too, because we can, there's, I mean, how many controversies can you see in today's society? I mean, every which way, if you, if you open up a YouTube channel, there's all kinds of people who have all kinds of different um, conspiracy theories, all kinds of thought processes on how things are supposed to go, all kinds of websites that try to point you towards different things to believe or not to believe about life and status. And let me tell you what, I've met many people who have gone down that rabbit hole to the point to where they were useless in society. I'll say that again. They were useless in society because they're so concerned about knowing the deep secrets of what's going on behind the scenes. And let me tell you, there's a lot of people who could care less about what's going on behind the scenes because they can't pay their rent. They can't go through and their families are breaking apart. They can't go through life on a day-to-day -day basis because they're not dealing with things the way they need to because they don't have the hope of glory that we're supposed to have and we're supposed to show people. We're unevangelistic in that sense when it comes down to things. We have to be people who are passionate about showing the gospel and sharing the gospel with one another because if that's the thing that's the hope of glory, it doesn't matter what you know that's happening behind the scenes. It does not. It's important that we can seek after the face of God. He can give us insight on what we need to be going for, on how to deal with situations. Yes, we need to be intercessors, absolutely. It's great to know information so we can pray specifically. But if we are not helpful in society, if we are not pointing people towards Christ on a day-to-day -day basis, then we need to reevaluate what our intention is to know some information. Because I know some people who they just like knowing information for the sake of showing you that they're smart. Which then becomes pride. Because it's about their brain and not about helping other people. We have to be passionate about Christ. Christ crucified, risen from the grave. He is the hope of glory, the salvation for all souls. <coughs> I'm not the Savior. I can't, I can't just explain somebody into salvation just on my own worth. They have to meet with Holy Spirit. They have to be convicted by the gospel message. So it's my responsibility to just open up to them what the gospel is. And it's on them to receive it or to reject it. But I can be persistent. And in my persistence, praying that they come to know Christ like I know Christ can't get hung up in foolishness, controversies, arguments, and quarrels about the Bible. Because they're not, they're not profitable. They're useless, actually. If you can have a conversation with somebody, and you can have a healthy disagreement in the mix of that, wonderful. That's awesome. But if all you're doing is you're yelling at people because you, ha you think one way about the Bible and they think a different way, then it, it just does damage, not just to the way that you see them, the way that they see you, and then anybody who's around you listening and saying, this Christianity stuff is just a bunch of dung. I don't want any part of that. I know plenty of people who are living however they want to, and they're much more happy than that. those two people. If we're supposed to have the joy of the Lord, then we have to have the joy of the Lord. 
<laughs> in our conversations, in our, in, our, in our livelihoods, in everything that we do. We have to do it with joy. I can have healthy disagreements with people, and that's wonderful. It's great. It challenges me. And that's what I need. I need to be challenged a lot of times. It helps me solidify what I actually believe when I'm challenged. But I can have healthy challenge and not inappropriate argument. Okay, almost done, I promise. Verse 10, he says, warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. This is harsh. Listen to this. Have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are wrapped or warped in sinful and they are self-condemned. This is within the context of having intimate relationship with people. And society and all these, other, all these other parts, you can talk to them about things that they're experiencing. A lot of times we deal with this with people in the church, so, too. Okay, this is really important. We talk to people as they're going through things. We talk to them about what is righteous, what is pure, what is holy. Talk to them about that. Deal with them again in that. Now, third time, when it comes rolling around, and this is, uh, some people get, is this literal? Is this figurative? Is this just something? Deal with this kind of how you want to, but, but there's something specific about about wasting a lot of time and breath when someone is dead set on sin. You still love them. It doesn't say don't love them anymore. It doesn't say don't spend time with them and, and deal with them. But in the context of a relationship that we're talking about, where we have to be people who challenge one another so that we can grow. If there's no challenging happening back and forth, if there's no growth, there's no desire for growth, then there's a process where it says, I'm going to love you despite your, your choices but I'm not going to sit here and try to spend hours and hours and hours convincing you of something that you are completely dead set against right now. You have to be willing to also change. How many of you guys have ever dealt with someone who is not willing to change and it becomes very dis divisive and becomes very hard to continue in conversation with them? Because you're desiring for them to change so much and they're desiring for you to shut up so much that you guys will just never get, get along together anymore. Right? Okay. So this is what he's talking about. He's like, look, we, we need to love people through the things that they're, going, that they're going through. They can know that we care about them so much and that we're going to be there for them whenever time comes. But it's up to them to make the decisions in their own life. I can't puppet them to live a life that I want them to because then they're living off of my salvation and they are not saved themselves. Sounds harsh. But we need to be wise. We need to be wise people. Wise as a serpent, but harmless as a dove. We need to feel whenever things are not going so well and say, hey, I will, I will happily bow out and then I will go to the Lord in the prayer closet and I will pray for your soul day in and day out because I know that the prayer of a righteous person avails much. I don't know how often my mom and dad prayed for us when we were doing all kinds of willy-nilly stupid stuff, <laughs> acting all kinds of crazy, doing what we felt was right, and the Holy Spirit ended up convicting us of those things. And he was the one that brought us to repentance. It was not the wise words of my dad. He's a wise man, but the Holy Spirit is much more convincing <laughs> than any human on the, on the planet Earth could be. And he will use different individuals in our lives to speak to us in these different moments. And sometimes it's just when you're by yourself and you can really feel him knocking on your chest and going, you need to fix some stuff and it's not going well for you right now. And I know why. <laughs> Because you're not hanging with me. And so we need to be wise in the way that we don't waste our time and the people's time around us. 
who are dead set on doing things that are completely outside the framework of relationship with Christ and believe that Jesus is good and faithful to see them to salvation. If I know that it's the righteousness of Jesus and it's his sacrifice that saves people, then I can also have the confidence that he will reach their heart in ways that I cannot reach them. And so I'll be faithful to pray for that person and to love them in the midst of it and to, and to just ask the Holy Spirit to do what he does best in convicting them and convicting them in love. And then sooner or later, you'll find yourself in a conversation with that person in a, in a completely different context. You're like, I did not think that this was going to happen right now. I didn't think this was what was going to come about this conversation. I thought this was going to be like the old times. But something changes because the Holy Spirit will soften the hearts of these people. And sometimes it could also be through the hands of the love that you show them in the midst of their struggle. Let's, let's get down, Sean, to the, uh, the, the four points. I have four points for you tonight, today, and, uh, and we'll end with this. The first one is, is that these are four, four areas of, of how we should live. Okay, so it's going to start with live on it. The first one is live peaceably. This comes from verses 1 through 2. As we're subject to rulers and authorities, as we're obedient and ready to do whatever is good, we're not slandering people, but we're living peaceably and considerate and always being gentle towards everyone. This is how we live peaceably. With those who we're working for, whether you agree with them or not, you have submitted yourself under their authority as their employer, or as, as their employee. So whether or not you agree with it or not, you're working there because you have agreed and signed a contract to work for this person or these people. Obey that process in which they have. You can speak with them if you have the, the relationship with them to change some things in your life and, and those uh, and the way that things are operated, but it's up to them ultimately because they are the ones who own it. So how about you, we submit underneath their authority, and if it's something that is completely immoral that you don't see eye to eye with, then it's time for you to exit, and the Lord will provide for you in a way that will be beneficial for you and your family. Live peaceably. Do good. Don't slander. Goodness. That's Gossip and slander is something that is that just destroys many people and it's rampant in churches many times. Did you hear what so-and-so did? My goodness. That's just a sinner. Just a sinner. How about we love people through those things? Don't slander their names, but if you have something to say, go to them and help them grow. Okay, point two. Point one was live peaceably. Point two is live freely. This comes from verses three through seven. Because we were once deceived and enslaved by all these passions, but now we're set free by the, by the gracious gift of salvation that Christ has given us. So we can live freely, much more freely than we thought that we were freely living in our own pleasures. Because that was actually in bondage. I love the language that Paul uses when he says, I'm a bond servant, I'm a bond slave to Christ. Because that process of being a bond slave is that, is that you, uh, that's when a slave realizes that I've enjoyed working for this person for such a great long time in these contexts, the way that they would do in, in the historical context is that if you were a slave and you really enjoyed working for that person, they treated you really well, you had a lot of great benefits from it, it was a great place to work, work at, and you really enjoyed the whole process, then you would say, I'm, even though I'm finished with my process of having to pay you back with my work, I'm choosing to continue to work for you because I believe in, in what you're doing. So Paul said, I was once a slave to sin, bound to the things of the flesh, 
but now I'm a bondservant because I see the gracious gift of salvation that Christ has given us, and I choose to worship and to serve after him, and I dedicate my life in this moment to serving underneath you for all of eternity. So we can then live freely because we find out that it is truly in Christ that we are free. He set us free from the uh, enslavement of sin, bondage of hell and the grave, and he's given us life and life everlasting. So now we can be free in our lives. The third one is live evangelistically. This is very important, and this comes from verses 8 through 9. Again, this is trustworthy saying that these things are excellent and profitable for everyone. And as we avoid these controversies, as we avoid these things that are that are crazy and wild, you start to see that people gravitate towards the thought process that you have because you're not full of conspiracy, you're not full of, of hatred, you're not full of envy, you're not full of all these other things. You actually live in a free way that they're not experiencing, even though they're doing all the things that they want to and still miserable. And so when you live your life this way, you'll see that you live evangelistically, that everything that you say, everything that you do glorifies God. You don't have to give a hallelujah at the end of every sentence in order for that to happen. But your relationship will then reflect in a way that draws them to Christ. And lastly, we live in unity. Verses 10 through 11, he says that we need to warn divisive people once, warn them twice. After that, have nothing to do with them in that. You may be sure that such people are wrapped or warped and sinful and they're self-condemned. If we can live in unity, that means that we have those tough, tough <coughs> conversations. We have those opportunities to, to walk through correction. We also need to be correctable in our own lives, too, knowing that we're not perfect in everything that we do. I know I'm not perfect in everything I do. Being corrected doesn't feel good, but I love the outcome. It's great for us to go through this process. It's great for us to grow and to do this. If we're truly going to be the body of Christ, then we need to be people who can be correctable, people who can, who can develop one another, and then people who can live out that correction and that relationship and be cool with one another to the point to where we can have that dialogue freely. And then we can live evangelistically in the midst of that. Because when people see that you can have healthy confrontation, that's a whole different ballgame that society right now is completely avoiding. It's my way, and if you don't do it my way, then you are, go down the list of you're a racist, you're a bigot, you're a homophobe, you're this, you're that, and you just continue to go down because you disagree with someone. But if you can disagree with someone with, with love in your heart, and you can have conversations that could even be a little, a, a little, uh, a little lengthy, <laughs> we call that a little lengthy, but if we can do that in love, then we'll find that people can gravitate towards that because they realize that there's growth happening in the midst of this. You don't just drop a seed on the top of the ground and expect it to grow. You have to till. You have to break the ground. You have to put the seed inside. And then you have to water it and then get rid of weeds and go through that whole entire process. No wonder Jesus used the vineyard as a process of learning what community is and growing together is. So we have to live peaceably. We live freely. We live evangelistically. And then we live in unity. These are the things that Titus is being told by a wise man who's been in ministry for a long time. So I'm going to challenge us this morning and ask a question. Is, is there anybody in here maybe that you feel like, you know what, I have not been living for Christ. I don't, I'm not, like, I don't know Christ in that, in that way that you're talking about. And I would like to know him. 
there's anybody in here who would like to know Christ, would you just raise your hand? Just let me know. Beautiful. All believers in here, praise God. And if perhaps you didn't raise your hand and you want to, you can come and see us afterwards and we'll talk to you as well. But now I want to issue a challenge to all of us here. As believers, what are we doing to grow with one another and to grow in our relationship with Christ? Are we having these conversations with one another that, that produce a growth in our lives? Are we living out this gospel outside of the church walls? Are we, a are we able to communicate this to people who don't know Christ in the midst of wild and wild and more wild circumstances that we find ourselves in today? I want to go through in the next, uh, the next few weeks, I want to I go to the book of Timothy, First and Second Timothy. We're going to break down a couple things. I'm not going to go through a lengthy process. Um, it'll be a little bit shorter process we'll go through. But Timothy mirrors Titus in many, many, many ways. Because Paul wrote to two separate spiritual sons of his. One was Titus and the other was Timothy. And gave them great direction on what we should be doing within the church. So I want to do some of this and then I want to be talking about the purpose of Christ's birth. Why he had to be born. And we'll move that all the way through uh, for a while into the Advent season. I feel like these things are important for us. We need to have great, great, solid foundational thought processes, in, especially today. I'm seeing this more and more as I'm in school systems. Uh, we have, we're, I'm in 10 different school districts across southeast Missouri, and I'm also part of academia in a couple different universities. And so I get to see a lot of the things that people are dealing with that are being taught from a classroom perspective, and we're dealing with things from many, many different ways of struggle. And so these principles are things that we absolutely need to have solid in our lives. Because guess what? We're not just living in today, but we're living to push the next generation into what they've been called into as well. So we have to be able to grow. Again, chapter two. We have to be able to grow and learn from those of you guys who have lived lives longer than we have. Those who are elders. You guys need to be able to impart wisdom to us. We need to be open and, and ready to listen to the wisdom that you've been given. We also need to have the process of pushing the next generation into doing what they've been called into and giving them opportunity and not coddling them into just weak, submissive people who can't think for themselves later on because they've just been handed everything that they've needed. We need strong individuals. Being a Christian is not the easiest thing in the world when you have sin lurking at the door. But it's a beautiful thing when we choose Jesus. It's a beautiful thing when we choose him. And the process that we find ourselves in. And the lives that we find ourselves living. Much greater and more beneficial than what we could have come up on our own. Let's stand this morning. Father, thank you so much just for this amazing opportunity to come together and to to worship your name. Thank you, Lord, for the example that you gave in Scripture. Thank you for Paul penning this uh, so that Titus can understand what he should be doing as a leader. Father, I ask you that as we go through and read the Bible on our own, that you'll highlight things in our mind that we need to work on. 
Father, let us not just, just read the word because we feel like it's something we have to do and just check it off as another thing to do on a day-to-day basis, but let us actually spend time with you in this. Let us, let us learn what your heart is for people. And let our ears be open to listening to your voice on a day-to-day process as we live our lives and go to our jobs and be sensitive to what you're calling us to. Let us love people just like you did. Let us have grace for people in the midst of their mess-ups and their, their circumstances. Let us have mercy for others when they don't deserve it. Give us wisdom as we go through these days and guide our hearts. Convict us in the areas that we need conviction in because we're not living perfectly at all times, so we need to have that correction in our lives. Let us be free and open for that correction so that we can glorify you in everything that we do. Let us be bold to pray for people in the, in the marketplace. Let us be bold to step out and to, and to tell people about what you've done in our lives. Let us not be passive Christians, but let us be actively aware of what you are asking of us in those times. We love you, we praise you, and thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. And everybody said, amen. I hope you guys have a wonderful Sunday. Hope I didn't beat you up too much this morning. (laughs) Go eat with somebody. Casa's always a good option. We'll see you all next week.